Good morning. Well, today is, as Becky's just been explaining, our last normal Sunday of the year before we get into Christmas services, although normal is a very relative term at the moment, as the reality is we haven't had a normal Sunday since March the 8th, which was our last normal Sunday before the virus struck and everything got turned around. But anyway, um, it would be great to have some more stories for the 27th. We, as we're only having one service, there's obviously going to be a very limited space, but uh, we'd love to get video contributions as well and all that kind of stuff. So if you've got a story about how God has sustained you, helped you, blessed you over this year, we'd love to hear it. Let us know, and uh, we can either do that live on the day or, or video you speaking about that. But this morning, as it is the last normal Sunday uh, of the year, it's a good moment to take a, take a bit of a moment to take stock, really, of this past year and look at that through a biblical lens. The reality is that some people have done better than others over the course of 2020. I know that some people actually quite enjoyed lockdown, certainly the first lockdown, maybe those first early days and weeks when the weather was unbelievably glorious and the streets were empty of cars and the birds were singing in the trees. And I I know quite a few people actually enjoyed certainly that aspect of it. And I know that perhaps some others have rather enjoyed furlough and uh, not having to go to work and uh, other benefits of the current situation. But probably the reality is that for many of us, it hasn't been an enjoyable year. It's been a pretty tough one. There have been so many good things which we have uh, lost and seen uh, disappear. There are certainly so many things I was anticipating doing, people I was expecting to see, places I was expecting to go, all of which what got binned and cancelled and was so disappointing. There have been all the uncertainties we've had to deal with where things we still just don't really know. All the most basic stuff, the stuff we got used to doing, wearing face masks, when we still don't really know whether they make any difference. Some scientists are saying, yes, they really do. There's evidence for that. Other equally reputable scientists saying, well, we just don't have the evidence that they're making any difference at all. So we really don't yet know because the studies haven't yet been done. So it might be that by wearing face masks this morning, you really are limiting the spread of the virus. Or it might be that you're simply looking like an Al-Qaeda hijack victim. We, we just don't really know yet. Uh, in The Guardian on Friday, there was an article saying that in the UK alone, we're getting through 53 million disposable masks every day. What are disposable masks made of? Plastic. Where does a lot of that end up? In the sea. Remember back in January, we were all very worried about plastic in the sea and the poor turtles. What about the 100 million people globally? 100 million people, it's estimated, will be put into absolute poverty because of what's happened this year. Less than $2 a day. That means that tens of millions of children will die, not from the virus, but because of the economic impacts. Been a lot of stuff this year which hasn't been good news at all. We've also been increasingly aware of the mental health impacts of this year on many. There was a report on the BBC websites this week about the impact upon students. Records this, Shakir, a second-year journalism student at South Bank University, lives alone in a studio flat in London. He has had no face-to-face lessons and is living in a bubble of one. He often walks the streets just to get out of his room, he says. I don't get to socialize with anyone, as my accommodation rules are that my bubble is myself. I'm not allowed to speak to anyone apart from reception if I'm collecting a parcel, and I'm not allowed to socialize with any of my neighbors. Shakir described himself as having zero 
motivation, a common symptom of depression. On the bad days, usually I'll just stay in bed, stay under the covers and just sleep as I scroll through my phone on Twitter or Instagram, whatever it is, and then just go back to sleep. He adds, I think at its worst, it's been like three days of lights out, blinds down, and just the only time I ever leave bed is to go to the bathroom. Now, maybe this year, you've had moments like that. I'm sure if you haven't, you probably know somebody who has. And actually, the Bible recounts some stories a bit like this, and we're going to look at one today. It's in the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19. It's a story of two mountains, Mount Carmel and Mount Horeb, and it's a story of victory and of despair, and it's one of the most cinematic stories in the Bible. It would make a great movie. Last night, our family uh, movie night, we were watching Gladiator, which I hadn't watched for years, 20 years old, and the kids had never seen, and uh, poor Nancy was saying, I've never seen anything so gory in all my life. (laughs) There was a lot of blood in Gladiator, but if they made a film of Mount Carmel, there'd be a lot of blood as well as the prophets of Baal get slaughtered by Elijah. We're going to pick it up, verse 3 in 1 Kings 19. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Elijah's just been through one of the most dramatic moments in Old Testament history. He'd gone on to Mount Carmel. He'd summoned the prophets of Baal, this hideous pagan god that the Israelites were prostituting themselves to. He'd had this cosmic showdown. He'd called down fire from heaven, and he'd won. And then the evil queen Jezebel promises to do Elijah in. And he's afraid, and he runs. And as we read the story, we might think, why is Elijah afraid? Why is he running? He's just being Gandalf. He's called down fire from heaven. He's slaughtered the prophets of Baal. He's even controlled the weather. There had been a drought for years, and then he prays, and a storm comes. Why, when he's experienced and channeled so much power, is he afraid? And I think it's because victory doesn't necessarily create security. I think... Elijah is living with a sense of exposure. He's kind of overst- he's, crossed the, he's crossed the line. And that's put a target on his back. You get too much into the limelight and it puts a target on your back. I think this year, one of the sadnesses of this year again has been a number of high-profile pastors leading huge churches and mega-ministries who've fallen into sin and been removed from ministry. Why does that happen? I think part of the reason is simply that you have that much profile, you're that much in the limelight, it puts a big target on your back. You know, there are some real advantages to obscurity. You've led an, an obscure life, that might not be such a bad thing. And Elijah is overcome by exhaustion. He has the whole package. He's physically exhausted, mentally exhausted, emotionally, spiritually exhausted. He's like that student Shakir, just under his duvet, blinds down. He's got what we would call depression. I'm sure if Elijah had gone online and done one of those surveys, he'd have ticked every box. Yep, got depression, needs some therapy, get some pills. And he gets to the place where he wants to die. It's not that he's actively going to do that. He's not going to 
commit suicide. But death looks like a better option than life. And maybe some of you know what that feels like. And I'm sure all of us know people who've experienced moments when they felt like that. It would be better if I just didn't wake up in the morning. It would solve a whole part of problems if I just didn't wake up. I'm going to die anyway. I'm no better than my ancestors. They all died. I'm going to die anyway. Might as well get it over with. Life would be simpler if I was dead. That's where Elijah gets to. Normally, we human beings, we fight so hard to stay alive. We fight for life. Think about the first vaccine given this week to 91-year-old Maggie Keenan. 91 and still fighting for life. That's what we do. But you can also get so low that Elijah, like Elijah, you just wish you were dead. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and they then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he went into a cave and spent the night. At Elijah's most desperate, at his greatest point of need, God provides for him what he most immediately needs. And this provision comes through supernatural means. The angel of the Lord turns up and touches him and says, get up. But what is provided isn't supernatural at all. What is provided is very earthy. It's sleep and food and water. And, and sometimes it can feel almost like we need a divine word just to remind us to do the most basic stuff of life, which is going to keep us healthy. Through Certainly in the early days of lockdown, we were talking about this a lot here at Gateway. We started a podcast, and we talked about this kind of thing on that. We had Beth Sear and other people on the podcast talking about how to stay healthy in lockdown. Make sure you get enough sleep. Make sure you eat healthily. Make sure you stay hydrated. And, you know, even a small details in this story are quite telling. It says that there was bread baked over hot coals. What is that about? It might be about all kinds of things, but to me it just speaks about the comfort of a campfire. If you're really down, actually one of the most cheering things is some decent food and a fire. It just gets provided with the most basic things. And then he eats and he drinks and he sleeps and the angel comes back and says, do it again. Eat some more. Drink some more. Keep doing it. It's a lesson in self-care. You know, it's really hard to uh, tend to your soul if you're neglecting your body. And Elijah just needs some self-care. He needs to sleep and eat and drink and sit by a fire. And it might be that over Christmas, what you most need at the end of 2020 is to eat and drink and rest and light a fire in the garden and just do some self-care. But this isn't merely or only about self-care. It's not just Elijah getting some therapy. Actually, it has a purpose. Elijah has a journey to undertake because God isn't finished with Elijah yet. God's not going to leave Elijah to die in the wilderness. Elijah comes close to throwing in the towel and God says, don't. Maybe 
this year, you or somebody you know and love has come close to throwing in the towel. Don't. Eat, drink, rest, and get going again. We're going to need to do that in 2021, get going again. You know, things aren't going to be magically different on January the 1st. 2021 isn't going to save us. Things are still going to be hard. Just in terms of the national picture, we'd normally expect the health system to be under most pressure in January and February. Things might well get worse before they get better, but we need to get going again. I'm not just speaking to you, I'm speaking to myself. This is now the third time I've heard myself speak to myself about this this morning, and it's just about beginning to get into my cold old heart. Get up, get going again. And Elijah is going to Horeb, the mountain of God. This is where God had met with his people Israel. He'd met with Moses and given Moses the law by which Israel was to live. And we don't know with certainty where Mount Horeb is. It's one of those slightly mysterious places, but we think Christian tradition would say it's by St. Catherine's Monastery in, in Sinai. This is about 400 miles from Jezreel, where Elijah had ended up after his encounter with the prophets of Baal and Carmel, and it's about 250 miles from Beersheba, where he'd gone on that first stage of his journey. And it takes him 40 days to get there. And the, it's not just a 40-day journey. There's something symbolically powerful about the number 40. Whenever you're reading the Bible and you come across the number 40, there's something going on. In the days of Noah, the flood that came, it rained for 40 days with the story of Moses himself. Moses as a young man killed an Egyptian and then fled from Egypt and spent 40 years away wandering. And then when God called Moses back to Egypt, he took the people of Israel out of Egypt and led them for 40 years in the wilderness. And for 40 days, Moses was on the mountain meeting with God and before Samson appeared in the era of the judges, the Philistines oppressed the Israelites for 40 years. And when Goliath turned up to taunt Saul's army, he did that for 40 days before David appeared and killed him. And when we get to the ministry of Jesus, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. It's not exactly clear what's special about the number 40, but something is. And when we see 40, we're meant to see that something is happening. God is doing something in Elijah and with Elijah. And the question is, what is God doing with us? It's one of those slightly strange coincidences. I didn't realize it till this morning when I looked at my calendar and counted back that it's actually 40 weeks since our last normal Sunday. 8th of March, 40 Sundays ago. What has God been doing? Now 40. What hidden work, what pruning is God doing that will result in future fruitfulness? Got to believe that God's doing something in us, something with us. But out of this, there will be a fruitfulness that comes. You know, the sad reality is there are some churches who are, haven't met since March the 8th and are still not meeting and will never meet again. They'll die. I don't want us to be one of those churches. Got to believe that actually God's been doing a hidden work in us. And we'll be one of those churches which comes back stronger. 
And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Now, why does the word of the Lord come to Elijah and ask him what he's doing there? Elijah's been afraid, and he's been weary to the point of death. And Horeb is a very long way from where Jezebel is. And it's the place where God spoke to Moses and the whole story began. So it seems like a good place to go, but the word of the Lord comes and says, what are you doing here? Elijah, what are you really seeking? What do you really want? And again, maybe that's a question that you found yourself asking this year. What am I doing here? What's the point? In the title of a teaching series we did recently, Why Bother? I think there's probably never a day that goes by now where Grace and I don't look at each other and say, sometimes ironically, sometimes with more pathos, why bother? Why are we bothering? Maybe you've asked yourself that question quite a lot this year as well. Why bother to be zealous for God? Elijah, it's all ended in ruin. The altars are smashed. The prophets are killed. The covenant is ignored. Would it have been better not to bother at all? I think Elijah's disappointed with God. Yeah, he's seen amazing, awesome power, but he's still sick at heart because of how life is and how his nation is. Elijah is giving God an honest appraisal of life as he sees it. But he's about to get a different perspective. You know, I think that God isn't intimidated by our honest appraisals of how we see life and the world. But the reality is, that like Elijah, it might just be possible that we haven't got the whole picture and that maybe God's got a slightly bigger and better perspective than do we. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. The Lord appears to Elijah. The Lord sends the storm The Lord sends the earthquake, the Lord sends the fire, but the Lord is not in the storm or the earthquake or the fire. Elijah knows that God is speaking in the whisper. And how often is it that we wish that God would speak in some dramatic way? God, send the storm, send an earthquake, send the fire. And the Lord is whispering. And we need to learn to listen for the whisper of God. The reality is that for us here at Gateway, we've experienced very little of what we think of in terms of spiritual gifts over this year because of the restrictions on how we can do things. We've had very little in terms of the prophetic. It's been very hard to prophesy with the restrictions we're operating under. And even in basic things, we can't lay hands on the sick and pray for them. It's illegal to anoint people with oil, lay hands on them and pray for them. But God is still whispering. 
Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenants, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of Shaphat to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. The question gets repeated. Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah gives the same answer. Covenants destroyed. The altars are smashed. The prophets are killed. It's just me left. I think Elijah's answer actually contains a question. Can you? God, will you? Protect me. I said this is a very cinematic story. This is the gangster movie scene of the story, really. The mob has put out a hit, and it's that dilemma in the gangster movie. If the witness goes to the cops, will the cops be able to look after them, or will the mob get them? That's Elijah's question. God, will you protect me, or are the mob going to get me? He's gone to Horeb looking for answers. Horeb is where... Yahweh had made covenant with his people. Is the covenant revoked? Is the deal off? That's how it looks, oh God. Everything is unraveling. What are you going to do? And again, maybe you felt a bit like this at times this year. It might have felt like that just in terms of how we're having to live. It's amazing how quickly we've adapted, but we shouldn't forget how extraordinary the restrictions we're living under are. That in the UK, the government's should dictate to you whether or not you can have friends come and visit you in your house is extraordinary. The fact the government can dictate to you whether or not you're allowed to go and kick a ball around in the park with your friends is extraordinary. And then there are the restrictions we've had to get used to in churches, where the government has instructed us not to do things, not to do things which the Word of God instructs us to do. The Word of God says, do not neglect gathering together. The governor said, don't gather together, or when you do, make sure there's several chairs between you and strict limits on how many you have in your buildings. And the word of God says, sing to one another and to me. And the government says, no singing. And the word of God says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And the government says, don't even shake hands. And we can ask, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? It all seems to be unraveling. It's all gone wrong. And then God shows Elijah a different reality. What needs adjusting here is Elijah's perspective. God says, the wickedness you see, Elijah, it's not going to go unpunished. You're going to anoint Hazael and Jehu and Elisha, and there is going to be a reckoning for wickedness. And Elijah, you're not on your own. You think you're on your own. You feel all on your own. But actually, there are thousands of others who haven't bowed the knee to Baal either. Thousands of others who've remained faithful to me. You're not on your own. You're just, you're just not seeing it. You've just, you just got the wrong perspective. 
Elijah, no matter how bleak things look, they're not as bleak as you think. God is doing something hidden, the fruit of which will come to light. The story isn't over yet. So Elijah, get up, get going, and go back again. And, you know, we could just leave the story at that. There's so much there for us to learn and apply. It's been a tough year for us. Hopefully we've learned some stuff. And God says, get up and get going. It's a cinematic story. It's not the hobbits there and back again. It's the prophets there and back again. But we just need to push a little bit further and think a little bit more about Elijah and what he means for us. You see, Elijah was a prophet who was called to confront the sin of his nation and call the people to repentance. And he was called to prepare the way for the Messiah, the Savior, the Rescuer. And then there was a second Elijah. Turn to the pages of the New Testament and John the Baptist appears, the one described in the words of Isaiah, quoted by Matthew, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. The one that Jesus said was the Elijah who was to come. John inherited Elijah's calling and he called the nation to repent and he announced the Messiah, the Savior, the Rescuer. He announced the coming of Jesus. And you know, we're not just hoping for a new year, hoping 2021 will be better than 2020. What we're looking for is the intervention of the Savior. Today is the third Sunday of Advent. Christmas Day is just around the corner. But we're not just waiting for one day. We're waiting for the King, actually the King who has already come. And it might be that this year at times you felt like Elijah did in this story. And the reality is that, yes, we have an enemy who's put a hit out on us. And yes, the reality might be that you're feeling tired, maybe vulnerable. We mustn't throw away our confidence. We mustn't throw away our confidence. Jesus is here. Jesus has risen. Jesus has won. And we are entering his kingdom even through trials. And what should we do? We should stand. And when we've stood firm, what, we should, what should we do? Stand and keep on standing. It might be that this year you felt like throwing in the towel. It might be you've asked yourself, why bother? What's the point? It might be that you thought it's all unraveling. It's all going wrong. It might be that you've just wanted to or actually have like that student in that account retreated under your duvet and hidden in the dark because you were too depressed to do anything else. Don't give in. Don't throw in the towel. Stand and keep standing. The Lord brings us into victory. We need to trust him and believe, believe for better. Should we pray for that? Why don't you stand with me and I'll pray and we'll come and worship. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the King, the Savior, the Rescuer, the Messiah who has come and you do bring us into life and into victory. Lord, I pray for any who are here this morning or watching online who have been or maybe even now in that place just of, of despair 
maybe literally in that place of depression, hiding under a duvet, just unable to face and deal with life as it is. Lord, I pray that you would bring comfort and healing. Lord, I pray that you'd help us just to do the basic things which help bring life to us as you provided for Elijah, sleep and food and drink and a fire. Lord, help us at this time to do the things which would care for our bodies and our souls. But Lord, we don't look simply for that, for self-care. We do look for a sense of vision and mission again. Thank you that you call us, not to leave us in the wilderness, but to call us to go back again. Get up, go back. And I pray that we'd be a people and that we'd be a church which moves forward in the mission to which you've called us. Lord, we do. We believe for better. We believe that in the hidden place you've been doing a pruning work which will result in fruitfulness. We choose to believe you again. We choose to believe that you are able to keep us and protect us. We believe that you have more authority and power and reach than the mob. So I pray you'd minister to us again fresh hope and faith. And as we finish this year, and as we start another one, whatever it might bring, may we be those who keep knowing your provision and your help, keep trusting in you, and keep believing for better. In your name.